Next, I'm facing 200 miles of the Himalayas. And I have a small uh, hermit room, one hermitage that's about nine feet by nine feet with a big window facing the mountains. I have no heating and, uh, and I'm fine, totally fine. This is Matthew Ricard, Parisian academic turned Buddhist monk who authored the book Altruism, The Power of Compassion to Change Yourself and the World. I won't say an encyclopedic book, but a book that took five years of research to cover all the different topics of altruism. He's a supporter of a growing social movement called Effective Altruism. Our vision is very similar. And so, yes, so I've been doing intensive research on the idea of altruism in all possible fields, from psychology, history, anthropology, evolution, economy, childhood, education, name it. It's, uh, there's uh, 43 chapters on the subject. <laughs> He's also, fun fact, been called the happiest man in the world because of a study on his brain that showed unusually high levels of positive emotion. I'm most happy when I'm there looking at the Himalayas, some wild animals around, and perfect time. So that's I spend time there trying to cultivate altruism and compassion. I think that many of us, at least at some point in our lives, are like Matthew. We're trying our best to know what really matters in life, how we fit in the world, and how we can make it a better place. In this series, we explore ideas about effective altruism. It's a way of combining the empathy and compassion that motivate us to do good things with the evidence and reasoning that helps us do those good things more effectively. Over three episodes, we take questions that keep us up at night, like why should we care for distant strangers at the cost of ourselves or our own communities? Or how can we make sure our donations are doing the most good and wrestle with just how hard it is to help in the face of suffering and uncertainty? We enlist experts from philosophers and statisticians to social workers and practitioners to find a way forward. In our first episode, we start with why. Why is helping others important? Why do we need to think hard about our values if we're going to live up to them? And why is it important to be effective as well as altruistic? We'll take you from our conversation with a moral philosopher in the ivory towers of Oxford, England. Just as we have duties not to harm and kill uh, strangers, so we have duties to uh, benefit and aid strangers. To psychological research on the relationship between altruism and happiness. So it's an intrinsic property of generosity and kindness, that there's a component of well-being. To a Catholic statistician who puts her money where her mouth is in New York. It's just, it's amazingly cheap to help people sometimes, right? They're people with enormous need and I can alleviate it because I happen to be lucky enough to be pretty stably well off. Um, and that's kind of thrilling, right? Like, because your dollars go so much farther abroad, you're being invited to do an enormous amount of good. Um, and that's exciting. Like, it's not just like this grim obligation. It's exciting. And more in just a minute. You're listening to Doing Good Better, a podcast from the Centre for Effective Altruism that explores how to combine head and heart to wrestle with how to, well, do good better. I'm Sam Deer. And I'm Stephanie Tam. 
Matthew didn't always spend his time in the Himalayas. He was born in France in 1946. My father was a late philosopher, Jean-François Rovet. My mother is a painter. He himself became a scientist, entering the Pasteur Institute in France for a PhD in genetics. So I was doing biology. It was very interesting. Genetics, fascinating. But somehow, I didn't feel it was uh, giving me you know, a sense of how to best lead my life. He was meeting lots of interesting people in different fields, traveling in culturally elite circles. Scientists, um, my mother being an artist, I met all the famous artists of the time. My father was a philosopher, so all the great thinkers. Myself, I was involved in classical music, so I met many great musicians. But... I could not see any correlation between being a, a good pianist, a good philosopher, a good scientist, mathematician, and being a good human being. I mean, some were wonderful people, some very difficult ones, you know. So, so I was puzzled by this lack of correlation. And that was a problem for the scientist in him. You know, scientific investigation, after all, uh, you know, is about uh, trying to uh, ascertain what is reality, isn't it? To discover new things, to see how things work. So he did some exploration of his own. Uh, but the main thing was to devote myself to a different kind of investigation. And so when I traveled to the Himalayas and met what you call people of great wisdom and compassion, then I realized that uh, there you have to have an adequation between what they know, what they teach, and what they are. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. But when you see a complete, consistent uh, world's behavior and way of thinking whatever you can guess for so long, then the only explanation, it, it comes from a source that is wonderfully altruistic and there's nothing much in mind but others' good. It's like a clear sky, you know, there's no clouds anymore, no clouds of selfishness, no clouds of, of narcissism, no clouds of jealousy, no clouds of arrogance. This is a clear sky of inner freedom that manifests in ways that are benefiting others. That's all I can say. And that made a lasting impression on Matthew's later interest in the relationship between altruism and happiness. So then I felt that, you know, pursue the line of rigorous inquiry of science, but apply to the happiness and suffering, selfishness and altruism. So fundamental human values that makes a good life and a flourishing life. And I thought that was, was much more inspiring to dedicate my time early enough so that I don't regret when I'm... You know, at the time of retiring, that say, okay, now let's take care of the what really matters. And I never regretted one second that decision. And I'm so glad that I did it when I was 26 and not wasting too much time. And then, uh, so like that. So first things first, what's this effect of altruism about? So I think that at its core, effective altruism is really about helping others and helping others more rather than less because it seems like there are just so many different ways out there that we can help people and it's really difficult to know which one to choose. This is Michelle Hutchinson. Yeah, I used to be the executive director of Giving What We Can and right now I'm trying to set up an institute for effective altruism as part of Oxford University. Sure. Okay, so when you say it's about helping more people, what do you mean by more, as in more numbers of people or helping uh, more severe problems? Are we talking kind of intensity or quantity or...? 
I mean both of those things, so helping um, an individual with a worse problem rather than a less bad problem. So one comparison that's sometimes made is between buying uh, guide dogs for blind people in a rich country versus treating uh, trachoma, which is a neglected tropical disease that afflicts a lot of people in really poor countries. So um, training guide dogs is obviously a hugely valuable thing to do. It's also quite costly. It costs in, in the region of um, $20,000 to train a guide dog from scratch to help um, a blind person get around better. Whereas trachoma is actually very cheap to treat. So it's this horrible disease that means that your um, eyelids end up turning inwards so that your eyelashes Ooh. scratch your cornea and it eventually results mm. in people going blind. But you can treat it so that that doesn't happen. Um, and it only costs about $200 to prevent someone from going blind. And in that case, it seems like actually with a certain amount of money, you can help far more people and you can also help them in a way that's much more meaningful to their life. So if you could stop someone from going blind in the first place, that's going to have a much bigger impact on them than helping them get around using a guide dog, even though the latter obviously is also really important. Okay, yeah, that's a very helpful example. Yeah, so I think effective altruism is really about caring about others, both um, humans and other animals who can feel pain and suffer just like we can. It's about having a scientific type of mindset about doing good, really using evidence and reason. And then it's about taking action because none of this really matters if we don't go out into the world and um, do it. There is a moral question here, it's a, a substantial, serious moral question. How much are we required morally to do to, to help people who, who are in great need? And what are the limits to how much we're required to do. This is Jeff McMahon. I'm a faculty member in philosophy at the University of Oxford, and um, I work primarily in moral philosophy, political philosophy, legal philosophy. On one of the last days of the summer, Sam and I sat down with Jeff in his office overlooking Corpus Christi Quad to ask some big questions. I think one of the questions we are interested in was why we should care about and help those who are distant from us and especially when it comes at the cost and comfort and convenience of potentially our immediate communities and ourselves. I guess I would say that one bit of common ground among all the moral theories is that uh, we do have reasons to save people's lives if we can do so at little cost to ourselves and this was the of course the basis of the uh, famous original argument of peter singers of uh, the child drowning in the pond just super quickly the child drowning in a pond analogy is a thought experiment that moral philosopher peter singer often uses which goes like this imagine you're walking past a pond and in the pond you spot a small child out of their depth and about to drown you're wearing some nice clothes. Let's say you're on the way to a wedding or something. You know that if you wait in to save the child, your clothes will be ruined. But you also understand that the loss of your nice clothing is insignificant. So you wait in and you save the child's life. You're a hero. Peter Singer drew the analogy to show that saving a life by giving away our money or our time is very similar. It's a small cost to ourselves, but it's insignificant in the scheme of things because we've done something so much more important. 
that was something that Peter assumed rightly that everybody would agree on, and that would be true whatever your moral theory is. It seems to me that in, in, in many ways the basic commitment to altruism is a component of all moral theories. It's something that everybody more or less agrees about, except for egoists of one sort or another, or nihilists or, or whatever. Uh, and the challenge is to weigh those reasons against the other reasons that we have, both moral reasons and prudential reasons, given that now we can do so much more. So what kind of moral reasons might come into play when we're thinking about why and whom we should help? I think it's obvious that, peop- that everybody thinks that many of our moral reasons, particularly our moral reasons not to harm people, apply almost equally stringently with respect to total strangers as they, as they uh, do uh, with respect to those near and dear to us. And if that's true about our essentially negative duties, duties not to harm, not to kill, and so on, uh, it should be true of positive duties as well. That is, duties to aid, duties to benefit, and so on. So it may not be as strong as our duties to benefit those who are especially related to us, but that's because in the case of our special relations, the two reasons coincide. So I think the paradigm case of a morally significant special relation is the relation of parent to child. That's very important. On the other hand, many people attribute great moral significance to relations that seem to me to be insignificant. Physical distance is, is one. It's hard for me to see how that could be morally significant. But the important point here is that special relations do come in degrees. And the reasons that uh, arise from special relations do get weaker and weaker as the moral significance of the relation diminishes. Well, so let me give you my slightly more boring philosophical answer than my more thrilling call to arms answer. This is Leah Labresco. I'm a writer and a statistician. Right now, I work for a remittance company called Wave that's trying to be a for-profit effective altruist group, basically working on making it so that when people send money back home to East Africa, a lot more of the money ends up with their family as opposed to in fees with middlemen. She has a couple different ways of thinking about who we should care about and why. One of the first things is just that our communities and our membership in them is a matter of happenstance. Um, It doesn't reflect any particular merit of ours to be born into our own families or to be surrounded by our particular friends. Um, And we could just as easily have been anyone or anywhere else. And because of that, you know, it's luck of the draw that we've kind of fallen in with these particular people we love. So who I care for and who has value can't possibly be a matter of happenstance. Um, And people who are far away who I could have just as easily have been one of um, can't really matter any less, even if they don't always have the same emotional heft for me because I don't know them as the people I happen to have fallen in with to know and love. That's a philosophy thing. Here's the more like, I don't know, pom-poms and fireworks. It's just, it's amazingly cheap to help people sometimes, right? They're people with enormous need and I can alleviate it because I happen to be lucky enough to be pretty stably well off. And that's kind of thrilling, right? Like everyone would get a thrill if uh, you were the person who like pushed someone out of the way of a car. And it would be like, I don't know this guy. Like, I'm not sure if I really want to. I think the thing is that you have some of that sense of 
a thrilling opportunity when it comes to effective altruism and to distant charity, that because your dollars go so much farther abroad, you're being invited to do an enormous amount of good. And that's exciting. Like, it's not just like this grim obligation. It's exciting. I love that you describe it as a thrilling chance, because I think a lot of people, when they hear about the drowning child analogy, um, they feel this sort of like guilt and like a sense of like, oh, maybe that's something I should do. But isn't that great? (laughs) I think it's a mistake. It makes more sense to frame it in terms of opportunity and thrill and gift that the opportunity to give altruistically is a gift to us, because that matches better what I do value about helping these other people, that they too have this opportunity to be gifts to others. Um, and that there's something really, again, thrilling about being human and being able to respond to each other's needs, not something crushing and despairing. I like this idea of gift. And I, I think it's a little related to what you're talking about with luck, too. Um, if I'm getting your sort of philosophical argument right, which is essentially that because there's nothing that is based on merit you know, we end up in certain more privileged circumstances. We have some kind of responsibility to help those who have gotten a worse luck of the draw, essentially, and alleviate that sort of misfortune or discrepancy, at least. The other thing about gift in all of this is that, you know, I'm Catholic. What God does for us as Catholics is that God constantly offers us the opportunity to be channels of his grace to help others. And that's super superfluous. It's always superfluous. We're only invited as a gift to us. Yeah, that's a that's a really interesting kind of flip of the gift slash burden of helping about, which is this perception of altruism as selfless. The idea that it's a mutually exclusive trade-off between our own good and that of a stranger. Do you think that it's true that there's a way in which our own good or flourishing or happiness or joy or whatever you want to call it is actually tied to those to whom we do good and that altruism might actually be as enriching for those who are not on the receiving end, but also on the giving end. Yeah. So I, I used to care more about this idea of selfless altruism, altruism that goes against my own instincts before I was a Christian. And I was like, oh yeah, like virtue is only virtue if I don't enjoy it. Like, because if I enjoy it, then maybe I'm doing it for my own sake. Like the best thing is to be kind to someone I hate. Um, and this doesn't work very well because first of all, it implies like I'd be the most virtuous if I liked no one. Um, which is, again, just like that despair thing. It's a weird goal to be aiming at, right? Like the perfect person, the perfect me hates everyone, but is kind to them relentlessly. <laughs> this idea of altruism is something that might be in one sense sacrificial and other oriented, for instance, trying to save someone else from suffering, but was also deeply personally satisfying and ended up improving the helper's happiness was something that came up repeatedly in philosophical, religious, and psychological perspectives. For instance, the study, like uh, Tim Kasser, the the psychologist from, used to be in Rochester. Kasser investigated the relationship between materialism and happiness. He found consistent evidence that people who prioritized things like fame, wealth, social status, and physical appearance tended to be less happy and satisfied. They were also more prone to narcissism, insecurity, depression, anxiety, and drug abuse. Then you look at the 25%, not the less materialistic, who more put emphasis on the quality of human relations, friendship, nature, global issues, etc. The people who valued those kinds of things experienced greater well-being and life satisfaction. In short, they were happier. So he wrote a book called The High Price of Materialism. It's a small book which summarizes research. And that's, you know, very clear case for 
you know, we're looking for happiness in the wrong place. Right. Yeah. And how would you define happiness? So happiness first is not a, a endless succession of pleasurable experiences that would be more a recipe for exhaustion than anything else. It is a way of being. It is a way of being. It is a way of being that comes with a cluster of fundamental human qualities. First of all, altruism and compassion. Things like inner freedom, inner confidence.、Um, uh, you know the the. So basically, it's a very exceptionally healthy state of mind that gives you the inner resources to deal with the ups and downs of life. That means you are more、uh, sort of acquired resilience、uh, because somehow you know that you can deal with things ups and downs. So you are less concerned with yourself and more available to others. And how about altruism? So altruism is the general benevolence. You want the good of others and bring the causes of the good of others. And then compassion is a sort of subset of that that wishes that whenever there is suffering, may the suffering and its cause be removed. So it is a motivation that, as long as you have the capacity to do so, will be followed by action. And what is the relationship to you between altruism and human flourishing, or I guess the good life, happiness, whatever you want to call it? Well, I think they are completely indissociable. The reason is that they cannot be a, happy, a selfish happiness. It's a self-destructive concept. There's, there's two reasons for that. The first one is subjective, experiential. Now, if you think me, me, me all day long, and that's all what you, matters to you, then you make your life miserable. And you make everyone's life miserable because you know the world is not a, the universe is not a mail-order catalog for your desires, and and for me is not definitely not centered around you at all. In other words, even if we build our happiness around our success, whether through careers, relationships, or money, we don't always get what we want. And to the extent that our happiness and identity depend on getting what we want, we'll probably be disappointed. Second thing is born to fail, because you know it's presupposed that you are separate entities, and you could possibly, ideally, build your happiness in your little corner without caring for others. So that's not true, because we are you know, fundamentally interdependent, and also we know from all the studies that the quality of human relationship is probably the number one factor contributing to happiness. So we're relational and dependent to different degrees on other people for our well-being. On the other hand, you know, an altruistic pursuit of happiness is a win-win situation. You really are constantly, you know, open, benevolent, compassionate, altruistic, and so of course others will perceive you as a nice person they like to be with. But also. Not you will see, you know that this is also the most satisfactory state of mind that you can think of. And what it was I found fascinating when I start collaborating with neuroscience is, you know, when they study positive emotions and with meditators who trained, you know, in loving kindness and compassion meditation, they found that when they engage in those states, is by far the self-induced state of mind that provokes the biggest activation of some areas of the brain. Connected with positive emotion, well-being, you know, the sense of belonging and stuff like that. So, subjectively, it is the most satisfactory state of mind, and of course, for others, it's the best. So, it's a win-win situation. Now, pe- some people who say, "Oh, 
everything is in the end some selfish motivation, you know, the universal selfishness, they will use that as an argument to say, oh, this is the warm glow, so you're sometimes kind and good to others because it makes you feel good. Right, I've heard that. I wrote this many chapters to debunk that silly hypothesis because it goes together. You know, it's like fire. Uh, fire burns, but it makes heat and it makes light. So it's an intrinsic property of generosity and kindness that there's a component of well-being. Now, if you were to say you heard about that, of the warm glow, you don't care a damn about others, and you're going to do something seemingly generous or seemingly nice to others without caring for them because you want to get the warm glow. Of course, you're not going to get anything. You're just going to to suffocate in your selfishness. Okay, so if we generally find that it's good for all sorts of reasons, whether personal, philosophical, or religious, to try and help others, I do think it gets trickier when we have limited resources. So one of the main claims of effective altruism would be that we have limited resources. We have a finite amount of time on Earth, finite amount of money. We can only spend those resources uh, in the service of certain things. So operating under those kinds of resource constraints, can we be moral prioritizers? Can we say that some ways of helping or some ways of doing good are better than others? I think we have to weigh our reasons against one another. That's moral philosopher Jeff McMahon again. So it it, it seems very obvious that if I can either save a stranger's life or give my child a nice lollipop, (laughs) I must save the stranger's life. But if I must make possible uh, uh, some kind of beneficial surgery for a stranger or give my child an education, even though an education is not as important as the surgery in itself, The fact that my child is my child may make it permissible for me or even obligatory for me to use my resources to give my child an education. These are things that that aren't easy to quantify and weigh against one another. And while that's true, many of these trade-offs are extremely difficult to weigh up. I think it's important to remember that most of the time it's more likely we're giving up the lollipop rather than our child's future. Well, I do think that one kind of trade-off is particularly difficult, and that is trade-off between that, on the one hand, and what philosophers might call perfectionist goods on on the other. Uh, Opera, the arts. uh, But if you ask, you know, if you could have fed some more people, but we wouldn't have the novels of Dostoevsky or George Eliot, that's that's more difficult. Okay, now, let's be practical. Matthew Ricard again. One day, you bring there, I don't know, the Rockefeller Museum or whichever museum, at the door of that museum, you bring a thousand children right there in front. And then you have a committee that's going to decide today, now, with the children there, are we going to save those children or renovate the museum? Nobody will hesitate a fraction of a second, not, not even the question isn't it? It's simply because somehow it's far from the eye, far from the heart. The fact that you could see them in front of you, sitting there, right in front of that museum, and you have to choose between repaint the museum or save their life. So what do we do? Nobody in their healthy mind will say we sacrifice the children, of course. So that's a lack of imagination in a way. But I don't think it's just about a lack of imagination. Distance does make things feel different, doesn't it? So how do we negotiate nearby needs and distant demands in practice? 
Leah Labresco has her own system. You know, when I when I feel the urge to help someone and I want to act out of love nearby, I do donate to the person I already know and love, and then I match that donation with a donation to something GiveWell recommends. So GiveWell is a charity evaluator. They combine in-depth research to work out how cost-effective it is for people to donate to particular charities. It goes beyond, does this charity spend a lot of money on admin, and instead asks, does this charity actually cause good things to happen in the real world? I don't actually want to have the practice of saying no to the friends around me all the time, um, but I, I don't want to squelch that you know, impulse to love and to care for others. Um, what I want to do is I want to harness it so that it pulls me onwards to the people who kind of never make that personal demand of me, whose faces I don't see. So that this one particular act of love, I'm like, oh, right. Like, and if I knew these other people, I'd love them too. So let this remind me to act further. That's really cool. Um, and it, it actually brings us to one of the, I think, contested areas, which is also whether it is, in fact, better to support one charity over another. Um, I think a lot of people probably understandably find it offensive to be told that they should give their money to one charity that saves hundreds of children from malarial death through bed nets, as opposed to, say, one that allows one dying child to visit Disneyland, especially given that many people start and support charities because of the death of a loved one, like a very specific individual by a specific disease. Um, I don't know that there's any easy answer to this, but do you think it's fair or good to evaluate how much good a charity does based on things like how many lives it saves or suffering it reduces? Um, and if so, is there some kind of moral weight to choose charities that are more effective? I think especially the easiest way, like domain to answer that question, is when you get the clipboard people on the streets, any charity you don't have a personal connection with. When you're juxtaposing that charity against a more effective one, you should usually pick the more effective one. You should do a little bit of the research, whether it's enough to trust GiveWell or more extravagant research of your own, to kind of learn what is the generic charity where when I want to do good with money, I have the most confidence. This is especially relevant as some social interventions are many times more cost effective than others. When it comes to making a donation to something where you have a deeply personal connection or you're honoring a specific person, you know, I don't think you can never do that, but I try and keep that as a separate category in my mind from my like more general effective altruism donations, where I think of it as a gift really for the person I'm honoring. You can have a more totalizing approach to EA, though relatively few people do, where it's like, don't buy birthday presents for your parents, like give that money to malaria. But if if you're already in a position where you do buy birthday presents for your parents or anything else, you know, put the donation to the foundation that chases the disease your mother had in that category. It's a gift to her. Um, but if you're trying to also kind of donate a certain amount per year to charity, do that with the other bucket. I think not to be stuck, <laughs> it's better, not to be stuck in self-centeredness because it narrows your world a lot. It's always me, 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 and things which are related to me, me, me. So that's the only way, I think, to have this sense of, you know, Universal responsibility, that's the, what the Dalai Lama, the term he uses. We have this have to sense of universal responsibility. In addition to universal responsibility, Matthew also brought up this notion of sentimentality. So if sentimentality comes in the picture, it biases altruism. That means you will not use whatever time, resources, power, anything you have in your hands in the best possible way for relieving suffering. You are going to be influenced by your reaction to acute 
I don't know, a child that's just in front of you or something that moves you is great. That things should move you. But then what about if 100 other children are going to die because you completely focus on this cute child? How can you possibly not that, take that in consideration? So sentimentality is just very sort of a raw, basic sort of emotional response to other suffering. And if you don't disengage yourself from that, I'm not saying emotion altogether, of course, but sentimentality, that means the, the bias that comes through that. Then you are born to, of course, prefer all the, the people that you know, that you have seen, that are cute. So basically, effective altruism is your basic motivation is altruistic. You want to achieve the good of others. You want to remove the suffering of others. Now, it's simply while being full of compassion, you can be have a tremendous compassion and emotion about wanting to remove suffering, but not sentimentally. So when you say, okay, what is the best way to remove suffering in the biggest possible way with what I can put in, in terms of time, in terms of energy, in terms of capacities, in terms of resources. So that should be your passion, isn't it? Of course, effective altruism is not without its critics. I think people worry about two things. One is that it's maximizing. That's moral philosopher Jeff McMahon again. So by maximizing, Jeff means a morality that says you're required to maximize the amount of happiness you create, even if that means making yourself miserable or putting yourself into poverty. In this sense, there's an underlying assumption that your personal well-being matters no more than anybody else's in the equation. And if it's maximizing, it's not leaving enough room for other things in life that matter, and therefore as a threat to their own well-being, a threat to their own autonomy, a threat to what Bernard Williams called their moral integrity. That is, people's right to act according to their own values and beliefs. We haven't answered yet the question, how much uh, of my time and effort and resources am I morally required to devote to helping other people? as opposed to, for example, doing philosophy or playing squash. Um, and those questions just haven't been answered yet. Consequentialism gives an answer. So consequentialism is a moral philosophy that says what makes an action good or bad are its consequences. So to be a good person isn't just about having good intentions or being virtuous, but about trying to take actions that bring about the best possible outcomes. And I'm not persuaded that that's right. I'm not persuaded that it's wrong. I just don't know. And that's why moral philosophers need to become more engaged with what you're doing. So I'm not a, a, a card-carrying, effective altruist. I'm a fellow traveler with effective altruism because I think uh, the effective altruism movement it, it has got to be right that our reasons for helping people throughout the world who are suffering and dying prematurely are much stronger than common sense morality tells us that they are. And I think it's easy sometimes to settle for less. Um, where you go like, well, this is such a hard problem. My answer probably won't be the right one, so why bother? And this is super hard for everyone who works in a charity. You know, it takes courage to start a charity and then shut it down going, you know what? Like we spent two years on this. We think we did some good but we think it'd be better to spend your dollars somewhere else now that we've tried this. That was good to learn. The worst thing to would be to persist in the error. But Giftwell is great about being super upfront about, yeah, like we'd project, like we'd probably pick different things if we had perfect knowledge, but we're doing the best we can. So there's a lot of room for growth as well as a real potential for joy. 
in the process of learning and loving and learning to love. It's always important to ask, you know, why we care about saving people from malaria. And it's because we care about people, right? We're not like just racking up a score against malaria. And there should be moments of beauty and of friendship and love and in your own life because it's we're saving lives for something, not just for the numbers. And your life should reflect because you're also as valuable as the person you're saving. It should reflect what it is you think is wondrous about human life. The thing that's interesting is how you've had people from very different moral backgrounds, but there's this unifying thing, and I think this is the most important thing that Jeff says, is that whether you conceive of this as just like common sense morality or whether you look deeply into all of these different moral theories, they all seem to converge on this basic idea that helping others is a really important component of that morality. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that's so awesome about it, too, is this idea that philosophically, religiously, and also psychologically, all of these things kind of converge. And helping others is not only something that can be a loving, good thing to do, but one that is really enriching and personally satisfying. And I think Matthew says it's a win-win situation. I, I actually like Leah's point there when she was talking about friends who are nearby asking for help and that being a reminder that, okay, yeah, there are actually people on the other side of the world who don't just kind of by chance have the opportunity to ask me for help in the same way, but that our love for those who are close to us can also remind us of the need that is distant from us. Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful way of, of putting it because you're not denying that that's, right, that's the case. Right, I mean, and, and I think I think this is where people get most uncomfortable and also speaking personally, I think is when you end up pitting something like, oh, are you going to be selfish and save your mother or yeah. are you going to donate that money elsewhere? And, and those are really hard issues that... Um, uh, yeah, so I think that's... We don't have to see the effective altruist approach of thinking as universally as possible as a repudiation of the love that we feel for people who are close to us and the care that we have and the compassion that we have for people who are in our immediate field of view we can see that compassion as being like well the main reason that these people evoke these feelings of compassion is because i know them and i know their stories i'm invested in their lives but it doesn't mean that they're more or less deserving of compassion than other people i I think there's certainly something to be said for this idea that investing in your own community and your own relationships just people can't function without that and i don't (laughs) think that anyone who's interested in effective altruism says like you should forsake all of your close personal relationships and marginalize yourself in order to promote others and i think this goes to this concern that jeff mcmahon called it maximizing which is basically that you have to If you're trying to maximise the amount of total happiness, it might be that you can create more happiness by giving away all of your money and making yourself miserable. And it's certainly not clear that that's the best thing to do. What seems more clear to me is that often many of us do have the resources. Obviously not all of us, but many of us have the resources to give away uh, some amount of money and it really won't affect the quality of our lives at all. But because that money can go to things that are very cheap, like preventing tropical illnesses like malaria, that the amount of good that we can do far, far exceeds the small loss to us. Yeah, yeah, and in that sense, it is it is a very exciting opportunity. One point that I think is critical to effective altruism is this idea of operating under resource constraints. The, the reason that we have to be effective is not because there aren't lots of worthy causes or that the cause that you want to support isn't worthy. 
it's that there are you know a phenomenal number of worthy causes but you can only possibly help a very small number of them with your time and with your money and so effective altruism i think is it's a way of thinking through well if i only have a certain amount of money or a certain amount of time how can i help the most people how can i do the most good this has been doing good better a production of the center for effective altruism Make sure you check out our next episode, where we talk about the importance of using the best available evidence to help us maximize our impact. And if you're interested in learning more about how we can focus our desire to help others, check out effectivealtruism.org. You'll find resources on these topics and many more. Thanks for listening. That's all for now. Doing Good Better is a podcast series co-hosted by Sam Deer and Stephanie Tam, exploring the why, the how, and the what of effective altruism. Our producer is Stephanie Tam, and our sound engineer is Dominic Appa. Our production assistants are Sandrine Chausson, Jensi Hoare, and Kieran Lloyd, with help from Sam Deer, Iren Tortajada, and Nikita Patel.